Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. Today, we have a special bonus episode, and for it, I'm joined by Dr. James P. Collins of Arizona State University and Dr. Joseph Travis of Florida State University. The topic of the day is gene drives, a rapidly emerging field that is being discussed as a possible way of addressing a host of public health, conservation, and agricultural problems. If you're a follower of Science News, you've no doubt been hearing about gene drives quite a bit. And recently, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine convened a committee to look at the technology, and they released a report on June 8th. Dr. Collins was a co-chair, and Dr. Travis was a member of that committee, and they joined me to talk about the report and the future of gene drives more generally. But before we move into the interview, I wanted to give a quick working definition of gene drives. So a gene drive is a genetic modification that makes a particular gene more likely to be passed on to the next generation, and therefore more likely to spread. So say, for example, you had a gene that made mosquitoes less likely to carry malaria. In theory, at least, you could use a gene drive to spread that trait among the entire mosquito population, which would ultimately mean less malaria. That'd be a great outcome, but there are some important risks involved too, which we discuss in the interview. So let's get straight to it. Dr. Collins, Dr. Travis, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, James, for having us here. Okay, to get us started, I wanted to talk a little bit about the committee itself. And right now I'm looking at the committee roster. And just for the record, that's the Committee on Gene Drive Research in Non-Human Organisms. And I'm seeing a wide variety of expertise there, you know, biosafety, population ecology, entomology, ethics, ecological risk assessment. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why such a diverse group was assembled. Well, when we put the committee together, uh, we deliberately chose a diverse membership because we realized from the beginning, that is in my conversations with uh, individuals at the National Academy of Sciences, we realized from the beginning that this was a, uh, an issue that required a deep integration between the natural sciences and the social sciences in order to understand it. And therefore, it's, as you indicated, uh, a rich collection of individuals from a variety of disciplines in the social sciences and natural sciences and I believe that that really enhanced all the conversations that we had as a committee in order to not only think through the science that's involved as far as gene drives are concerned, the natural science that's involved, but also the ethical, legal, social, and regulatory implications of that sort of research. Okay, and you know, one thing I was surprised to note uh, from the report uh, was that the concept of gene drives has at least existed for quite some time. Um, what made the timing ripe for an intervention now? You know, why is this report being done now as opposed to you know, 10 years from now or five years ago or something along those lines? The, um, the thing that, that brought um, this issue really to the fore was the fact that, as you've noted, the fact that, that you get these uh, driving genes in natural populations of, uh, of animals and plants has been known for, for quite a while. But the emergence of the uh, so-called CRISPR-Cas9 technology provided uh, the opportunity to use that technology to um, more easily and more precisely insert a gene drive with uh, another sort of genetic element tag to it into an organism in order to drive change through population. So it's, it's the union of two um, very interesting areas of basic biology, 
one having to do with um, the gene drive itself, which as I said, we know in natural populations, uh, coupled with the CRISPR technology, CRISPR-Cas9 technology, uh, and that emerged from a basic understanding of uh, what one could call a, a very a primitive immune system in bacteria. So the, the technology has made you know, it possible and available to do interventions that were not previously easily done. That's right. And what kind of problems uh, might gene drives be used to address? You know, what are some of the big issues that are particularly relevant now? Sure. Joe, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, the gene drives could be used to address a diversity of things. So, for example, uh, it, when you have mosquitoes that can carry uh, a pathogen that would be harmful to people, for example, we talk about uh, dengue fever, the dengue uh, virus or the Zika virus. One could use a gene drive either to eliminate the population of mosquitoes that might be the vectors for that pathogen or manipulate the mosquito's ability to transmit the pathogen. And so a gene drive that whipped through the mosquito population could either uh, reduce the population to near zero or in a different type of gene drive, um, one manipulating the mosquito's ability to transmit the pathogen, uh, leave the mosquitoes unharmed but without the ability to pass the pathogen on to people. And you can just imagine the public health benefit from either of those possibilities. Another idea was to use the gene drive in a conservation context. So related to what I just said, for example, there are a number of pathogens that are invasive pathogens that are causing havoc on native birds in Hawaii, uh, native organisms in a variety of places. Well, if you could engineer a gene drive that would eliminate uh, the vectors of those pathogens from transmitting them or eliminate the vectors, you could rescue a whole bunch of endangered species, threatened species, and uh, eliminate a major threat to biodiversity in some places. Another idea, taking that one one step further, you have a lot of invasive rodents on islands that are wreaking havoc, much like a pathogen wreaks havoc with the Hawaiian birds. You can have rodents that wreak havoc with pretty much everything um, they can reach on an island. And an idea for using gene drive was actually to um, render those, those rodents either sterile or eliminate the invasive rodent populations. So right there you have a range of, of applications from public health to conservation biology, um, all amenable to one particular tool. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned the suppression of a species um, as one possible use of this technology. And is that mostly done through creating a bias in the, uh, in the sex of the subsequent generations? Um, you know, you end up with the 90% male mosquitoes are the offspring, and then that eliminates the species? Yeah, there, there are two ways that that can be done, and that's one of them. Once you have nothing but males, there's nobody left to lay eggs, and that's the end of that situation. Another way to do it is to have a gene that's actually lethal, say, in the, in the uh, larval stage, that when, when it is in two copies. So a gene that has two copies could be lethal in the larval stage. One copy, it would have no effect, but because of the gene drive mechanism, it would be transmitted to the next generation um, almost in its entirety. And so you would form more and more homozygous or more and more individuals with two copies of that gene. It would be lethal and eventually you would eliminate the population. 
Okay, and I wanted to bring up something that was mentioned in the press conference. And, you know, it's that many of our listeners may be familiar with uh, recent field experiments by Oxitec um, regarding suppression of target mosquito populations. But I wanted to be clear that that's not what we're talking about here. This is a different technology, right? Yes, this is a different, this is a different technology uh, in, in how the genes are manipulated and how the manipulated gene is spread. And, and what is the primary difference there? So, so what happens? What would hap- what would be happening with the gene drive approach to a problem like mosquito control is that you would develop a, a, a genetic construct that did two things. One, it would either it, it, it might ster- it might sterilize uh, females, um, or it might uh, cause nothing but males to be reproduced, uh, or it might be lethal to the larvae. Um, so you have one manipulated gene that hits the mosquitoes directly. The other element to the gene drive would be a part of a construct that allows the entire construct to be replicated and transmitted in uh, to near uh, in the bi- in the biased inheritance system that Jim described earlier. In other words, rather than if an individual had one copy of the construct and one normal allele rather than giving its off, half of its offspring getting the normal allele, the normal gene, and half getting the gene drive construct, they might all get the gene drive construct. And what that does is spreads the construct very, very quickly through the population within a dozen generations sometimes. So that's a very key difference from the kind of introduction that Oxitec is, is doing with, with um, genetically manipulated males. Um, it, it just takes a lot, it works in a lot more rapidly and um, in much fewer generations. Okay, I think that gives us a good overview of sort of how gene drives work. But I'm wondering now, what makes a good gene drive species candidate? You know, obviously we're not gonna be using this technology to modify elephants or giraffes or something like that. (laughs) Well, first of all, Jim, if you don't mind, I'll I'll answer this one, give you a break. Um, First of all, it has to be a sexually reproducing organism. So mice, mosquitoes, uh, it has to actually um, outcross, that is to say, mate with another individual. And that's in order, in, for, and that's to guarantee that the gene drive mechanism of biased inheritance will actually work. So you actually have to have a sexually reproducing um, organism. It has to have a very short generation time. So in other words, you have to be able to really drive the gene through the population uh, very rapidly. Now, we, we can, I said earlier that the gene drive will spread throughout a population in 10 or 12 generations. And if you have a mosquito whose generation time is 15 days or 20 days from egg to adult, that means 10 generations times 20 days is 200 days. So it spreads in less than a year. On the other hand, if your generation time is 20 years like an elephant, you're going to wait a long time for that in years for that that thing to spread. So you need a short generation time. You need sexual reproduction. And if you're going to have a population suppression, that is to say, if you're going to have a gene drive that's going to eliminate a species entirely, drive a population to near zero, then it had better be a species upon which other species in the ecosystem aren't relying um, for food or aren't relying on for any other particular reason. In other words, it's, it can't be a very important species in the ecosystem because when you eliminate a major source of food 
in an ecosystem for other species, everybody else suffers. And we have lots and lots of examples of well-intentioned um, removals of species or eliminations of species that, in fact, cascaded through an ecosystem and caused effects that nobody really wanted to see. Okay. And does the state of the science tell us at this point um, what we should do with gene drives today? You know, obviously there are some, uh, you know, desperate human needs, things like the Zika virus and dengue fever. Um, this technology is, is in existence. Should it be in use now? The central conclusion of the report is that there's insufficient evidence available right now to support the release of gene drive modified organisms into the environment. And so that's a, a key conclusion as far as the report is concerned. With that said, however, we wanna make it clear that there are potential benefits of gene drives for both basic and applied research uh, that are significant and justify proceeding with laboratory research and highly controlled field, tri field trials. Uh, there are gaps in our knowledge, uh, things that Joe has already talked about particularly in regard to the ecological and evolutionary considerations as far as individual organisms are concerned and the ecosystems uh, that can affect risk assessment, public engagement and governance, and all these things have to be considered. So uh, a recommendation uh, from the committee is that the funders of gene drive research should coordinate and if feasible, uh, collaborate to reduce the gaps in in knowledge so that uh, we have a much better sense of the conditions under which we can use these gene drive modified organisms. So this is a situation where we essentially more information gathering is needed before anybody proceeds with, uh, you know, a large scale deployment. Correct. That's right. And I was, I was wondering if you could sketch out the path for, you know, how we would get from where we are today, um, you know, having the technology at hand, but not necessarily the knowledge and the information and the approaches to deploy it in, you know, in the real world. How does that path work? You know, so right now the technology is in the lab. How does it get out into the field and out into ecosystems uh, if we were to proceed? Uh, Joe, do you want to take that one? Do you want me to take uh, it? Yeah, let me let me start with that and then um, see how far I can take it. Uh, to, to think about that, James, you have to identify where are the gaps in our knowledge? What do we have to learn? So one gap, for example, is when we insert these gene drives into our targets, how much off-target uh, effects are there? That is to say, we, we alter what we are doing with these gene drives is replacing one DNA sequence with another. We want to make sure we don't disrupt other genes that might share for part of their um, coding a DNA sequence with the gene we wish to affect. So while CRISPR and the Cas9 system is very, very good, there is still some evidence that there can be off-target effects, that the gene drive construct can affect other genes. And the question then, the, the first step then is to refine our understanding of the CRISPR-Cas9 system and, and other mechanisms of deploying uh, gene drives to make sure that they are sufficiently precise in what they're doing, that they can go forward. A second area is that there is some data to suggest that the effect of the genetic constructs used in a gene drive might not be exactly the same on all the individuals in a population. So for example, in the lab, we almost always work with very well-defined genotypes, very well-defined individuals. Um, and we know what the effect of the gene drive is. But in nature, 
there is no single wild type gene out there. There's lots of genetic variation. And there's evidence to suggest that sometimes the effect of the gene drive construct can vary with the uh, genotype of the individuals. Now, of course, when we're creating our construct in the lab, that doesn't matter because we get to pick our individual and we pick the individual where it's the individual genotypes in which it's most effective. But once you let it go in the field, the, the, the beauty of the gene drive idea is that the gene spreads itself. We don't have to keep intervening. It spreads itself. But when it does that, it's going to spread itself into individuals with very different genotypes than the one in which we introduced it. And if it's not as effective in those genotypes or has different effects than we anticipated, well, we need to know that. And we need to anticipate that because that will influence how effective the gene drive will be. That will influence how many individuals we might have to introduce. That will influence whether we have to do it a second and third time and whether the whole thing is going to work at all in the, in the most extreme case one can envision. And so those are two areas where at least in the scientific arena, we're not really, we, we have gaps in our knowledge to fill in. Those have to be filled in before we can deploy a gene drive in, into, a, into a natural population or deploy it in the context in which we'd like to see it deployed. Um, Jim, is that, can you, does that make sense? It, 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 it does. Uh, and the sorts of things that, um, that Joe was talking about there, the committee discussed and the larger framing or a, a framing that can be used is something called phase testing, uh, which the committee discusses at some length in the report. Uh, it's an approach in which, is, as Joe mentioned, you really want to understand the target organism. You want to have a confinement and containment strategies in place to minimize unintended persistence or release. Uh, and you want to have a mechanism, ideally, to detect and monitor gene drive modified organisms so that if things begin to go wrong, you can have a sense of, of where, these, where these organisms are. Uh, we also discuss at some length, to continue, continue Joe's argument, the use of, a, of um, an ecological risk assessment approach. It's a way in which uh, you can approach these sorts of complex topics by um, quantifying the probability of different sorts of outcomes. It gives you an opportunity to trace cause and effect pathways, identify multiple sources of uncertainty, compare harms and benefits, not only from a natural science side, but also from a social science side. And therefore you can use the research and a very quantitative approach to inform public policy decisions. So the sorts of biology that Joe's talking about can be used to fit into this phase testing approach, an ecological risk assessment approach that can really help inform not only the science that's being done, but also the sorts of policy decisions that you'd want to be making in connection with using this technology. And from the report, it sounds like the phase testing essentially involves you know, beginning in the laboratory and then scaling up over time into larger and larger field studies um, that are secure and contained, of course. Yeah, that's right. You, you scale up towards, um, towards the field releases, and, and we want to be very clear that the field releases involve uh, release into, as you said, very secure uh, environments. Um, they're uh, contained environments in which the likelihood of an escape is is minimized. Everything is done 
to minimize that possibility before moving ahead to what would be a full-scale release without containment. And then a question about post-release surveillance. Hypothetically, you've released this gene drive into the wild. How do you know whether it's working, You know whether the individuals of the species and population are uh, contain the allele that you've added to the gene drive? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let me start on that. James, one of the things the committee um, discussed was to use the gene drive along with a, a visible or readily detectable marker. So, for example, uh, in the old days, we would have uh, visible mutants of, of flies that we would, we would use in the lab. You would know when a gene was spreading by how many of the flies had a certain spot on them or how many of them had a certain coloration somewhere. The idea here being to, to take that same concept so that you can assay in the natural population, is the gene drive actually spreading? Uh, is it increasing in frequency? Is it, is it dispersing across the landscape spatially, occupying a greater and greater area, and see how, how fast it's moving? Now, of course, when you have a gene drive whose goal is to suppress a population and, say, eliminate a mosquito population, uh, what you're going to be looking for is the drop in mosquito population numbers, drop in uh, density of the mosquitoes, and so you have to monitor constantly. One of the things we discussed was the need for constant monitoring and a readiness to do what one might call a kind of adaptive management. If, if it isn't working, how will you, you know, make sure you can identify that. If it's out of control, how do you recover it? How do you, can, can you put it back in the box, as it were, once, once you put it out? So the idea is to do, when you're going to do these kinds of releases, to find a way to be able to monitor both the increase in frequency of the construct and the spatial spread of the construct because you want it to go where you want it to go, and there may be places you don't want it to go. But since the organisms are passing it along themselves, both by mating and by their own dispersal as they are carriers, you can't control necessarily where they go in the wild once, once, they, uh, once you let it out. And so if there are places you don't want it to go, you have to be ready to put a stop to it if it starts getting to those places. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that these gene drives don't respect borders. That seems like it's going to create a great need for uh, governance bodies and international structures in order to address this from a regulatory standpoint. That's right. That, that's why the committee, uh, that's one of the reasons the committee uh, have put such great emphasis on the social science issues and the governance issues, because you could be dealing with different jurisdictions um, in, say, tropical environments or even in, in, in temperate environments. You could be dealing with different counties, with different states, with different regions. People may have different attitudes in one region versus another. You may be uh, encountering a situation in which the people in one area are, are very happy with the idea of a gene drive being released to suppress mosquitoes. People in a neighboring area may be very uncomfortable with it for their own social and um, traditional reasons. And so it's very, very important to think through all the issues that might surround this, and, and including the governance issues. And that's why one of the reasons we had such an emphasis on social science. And the report mentions public engagement. Um, does that mostly come down to information dissemination? Or are you, know, are you talking about advertising campaigns? You know, what would that potentially look like in this context? So um, the key, key thought, James, would be that public engagement really can't be an afterthought. Uh, it has to be as crucial an element of these conversations as are the 
the scientific issues when it comes to outcomes and decisions. So the, the key recommendation or a key recommendation that we make is that when it comes to communities, stakeholders, the publics, uh, these various governing um, authorities have to include research institutions, funders, regulators, they have to have clear policies and mechanisms for how public engagement is going to factor into the research, ecological risk assessment, and, and public policy decisions about gene drives, uh, gene drive modified organisms. These are key features of, of part of what const will constitute good governance when it comes to uh, gene drives. You know, one thing I was also wondering um, is there perhaps a role for scientific societies as it relates to public engagement? Um, you know, whether that's information gathering from members, information dissemination to members, um, aggregating the recommendations of stakeholder communities. Um, you know, is there a potential role for uh, scientific societies and the like in this? I would say there definitely is. Uh, not only in information gathering and information dissemination, but in education and outreach. There's the, 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 uh, the public in general does not have the kind of understanding of the science or a full understanding of the risks to the extent that members of the scientific community can have. And so it seems incumbent on the members of the scientific community to help the public in general appreciate the science, appreciate the pros and cons of deploying a gene drive uh, in the wild, and helping the public to come to, some, to an informed discussion of uh, is this the right idea for the problem at hand at this time so that you can get the kind of endorsement that you need to make this kind of uh, intervention successful. Because if you don't have the public support and you don't have at least the public confidence that you are doing something that has taken all the risks into account and that has weighed the pros and cons of the, the science, the risks, and, and all the attendant possibilities, um, th these efforts are going to be doomed to failure, and they'll be doomed to failure by what people think is going to happen versus what really might happen. Okay, so you know we've talked about potentially some of the international governance concerns, and we've talked about the necessity of getting the public properly engaged and aware of what's going on. One thing I, I was hoping we could also touch on is you know the gaps and overlaps in the regulatory framework uh, for dealing with gene drive technology, and in particular in the U.S. And one thing that I, I found very striking was um, in the report there's a you know a listing of of the various various bodies that could be involved in the regulation of a gene drive, um, you know, if it were taken to be animal control or if it were taken to be a disease suppression or, you know, a novel drug or, you know, those, the, the varying mechanisms. And I was just hoping you could describe a little bit of uh, some of the challenges related to that. Um, sure. You want me to take that, Joe? Yes, go ahead. Or at least get started on it. Um, so the, um, the diversity of potential gene drive modified organisms uh, really reveals a number of gaps as far as at least the U.S. regulatory structure is concerned and the committee was, was struck by this. So, for example, is a gene drive inserted into a mouse a new animal drug? Uh, that would come under FDA. Uh, a rodenticide, that would come under EPA or plant pest, which would be USDA as far as uh, regulatory uh, issues are concerned. So, what are 
the responsibilities of U.S. Um, agencies outside of the coordinated framework as well. Uh, those three agencies are within the coordinated framework, but what about U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service? How do these all come into discussions as far as regulating gene drives are concerned? So the recommendation from the committee is that uh, the U.S. government really needs to clarify the assignment of re regulatory responsibility for field releases of gene drive modified organisms. And this would include the roles of the relevant agencies that are not included within the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology. It really uh, are, are revealed a variety of gaps as far as the regulatory structure is concerned. And uh, the US government needs to uh, sort out how these gene drives will be regulated as we go forward from here. And just out of curiosity, is that work underway now, or um, you know, is the committee's work done, um, or are there plans to examine that in the future? Uh, it's not part of the uh, statement of task as far as this committee is concerned, but there is a separate committee uh, that's working on the coordinated framework uh, right now, and uh, that group of or uh, that group of individuals uh, is the is the one are the ones that will be charged with thinking through uh, how these various regulatory issues can be handled. And are there any other challenges, you know, associated with gene drives, either with their governance or, you know, the physical release that spring to mind? I think the only issue that strikes me that we didn't talk about explicitly is one of the things that distinguishes a, a gene drive approach from some other approaches, which is that you want the gene drive to spread. And a lot of our regulations and rules are designed to contain something, uh, contain a genetically engineered organism, keep it from spreading. Here we want it to spread. And in many cases, we want it to, we, 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 one can envision many cases in which one would want the gene drive to spread widely, um, but perhaps not infinitely. And so there's a bit of fuzziness there in terms of how do we regulate something that we want to disperse quite widely. We don't want to contain it if we were going to release it into the wild. We actually don't want to contain it. We want it to spread, but we want it to spread only where we want it to spread, not beyond that and not into other species and not into other areas. And this is where I think you end up having so many other points of view that need to be represented, whether it's in the regulatory fashion, as Jim said, just should the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, be involved? Should um, other agencies be involved? And, and where you run into the public engagement problem, because you have to, you may find yourself needing to engage a wide variety of people, very different constituencies in very different areas with very different prior opinions. And so there are some challenges to deploying gene drives based on the very nature of what a gene drive is designed to do, which is spread. And we usually think about our regulation as kind of let's keep it contained. Well, now we want to let it out there. And that's a different world. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. Uh, Joe raises a, a, really, a really good point in that regulation of genetically modified organisms right now under the, under the U.S. coordinated framework or, or um, the reg for the regulation of biotechnology or the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, the Cartagena and Nagoya Protocols, they're all predicated on containment. And as Joe uh, indicated, uh, gene drives are designed to spread. 
And so they offer a fundamental challenge to the schemes that are in place right now as far as governance is concerned. And that's obviously something we'll be watching very closely over the coming months and years. Dr. Collins, Dr. Travis, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome, James. Uh, You're welcome. It uh, It was a pleasure to have this conversation. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just as a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.